Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. We are here today with another guest. All our guests have been great lately. They've been so good, and we've had incredible feedback from our listeners. So we're excited to have Nick come back on the show to talk to us about his experience recently purchasing an investment property, an Airbnb, down in Austin, Texas. Now, the framing for this show was quite simply, why now is not the right time to buy real estate in the US? But transparently speaking, there are a lot of reasons to buy real estate anywhere and everywhere if you do it right. The goal here is to explain to you what worked and what didn't work specifically with his experience. There were a lot of them, by the way, and he did a great job explaining basically a play-by-play of his experience searching for uh, a property, what he picked, how he picked it, the signing, you name it, all that kind of fun stuff. So this will be a little bit of a, a different show and a fun little episode to get the backs, the, the insight, I should say, on the back end of what happened in purchasing a Airbnb down in Austin, Texas. Guys, as always, if you are enjoying the YVR Remo show, you have only one price for entry. That is to leave us a five-star review on Spotify. All you have to do is click on our image, hit the five stars. If you're on iTunes, same sort of thing. Click the page, five stars, leave us some feedback. And if you do, guess what? We send you a little delicious little treat to say thank you so much if you send us a screenshot. You can see us on thrivemortgage.ca or at Thrive Mortgage Co. on Instagram. And that's where you want to send that screenshot over to. Listen to this episode, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. Nick. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's nice to see you again. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here again. For all of our listeners out there, uh, this uh, beautiful looking man joined us the better part of a year or a year and a half ago in person for the last podcast where we talked about everything to do with Nick's history in development, how he got here, where he's investing, all that kind of fun stuff. So if you want to go uh, listen to that, go back and check it out. I do recommend it. But in the meantime, Nick's back with us here today to dissect and talk about a topic that was, I mean, it probably still is, was really hot for the better part of uh, the last year and has become much more talked about and more prominent in the real estate space, buying real estate across the border in the United States. Um, Nick, you did it. You actually bought a home in the US, right? Um, you did. You sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to basically, what we're going to do guys is take you through a, a walkthrough of Nick's experience from how he got started to what he do it again and everything in between. And so uh, Nick, I just want to start off really quickly, man, to say thank you for coming on and really talk about what just piqued your interest to start of buying state real estate in the States instead of doing more up here. Yeah. You know, it's always been on um, a bucket list of mine to buy a, a, a property abroad. And it, outside of at least British Columbia, um, if not Canada, and uh, so I made my I made investments in Canada. You know, I have I have a few properties in in, in British Columbia now and uh, throughout. And now you know, I, I wanted to um, buy in 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 the U.S. So I so I you know researched did a lot of research started researching actually say probably like you know September October twenty twenty one. And uh, to give context to that, um, 
we closed on a property in June. So I bought it with a friend. Um, and we went down to Austin, Texas, is where we decided to purchase, ultimately. And uh, we were down there in, I want to say it was April, for the look at a few properties. So a lot of research done ahead of time, trying to figure out what the best opportunities were. I mean, there's obviously not, there's, you know, even six months of research is enough time to figure it out, figure out the U.S. market. So we narrowed it down to a few markets, one of them being... Um, one of them being um, Scottsdale, um, another one being Dallas, and another one being Austin, Texas. And then we saw we, we kind of we kind of narrowed down to Austin, Texas, because um, the the migration. We saw the migration of techies moving from California to Austin, in particular, because of the the migration of big companies and their headquarters and the tax implications for them too. So, so we, so the, the assumption was that, you know, with all this migration into Austin, you know, property values would go up, which they did. Um, and, uh, and it would be a very good, you know, short-term rental market for us. And that was the idea. Our intention the whole time was to find a, a short-term rental uh, property that could accommodate either, you know, techies, business people, or, effectively stags and stagettes that go to Austin for fun. You know, you get a house in Austin in that area, you will ultimately have those types of travelers. So, I mean, as long as you know your demographic, the people that you're marketing to, which a lot of people don't realize that when you're getting an Airbnb, you want to be clear about who you're trying to attract and, and who's coming exactly. on. Um, one, I do want to take a step back here. And uh, the reason that this is important, so you mentioned Austin, uh, Texas, and you mentioned Scottsdale, Arizona. Now, um, for the better part of the last year and a half, I've had I, I've had more people reach out to me in the last year, year and a half about buying a property or an Airbnb specifically property in Scottsdale yeah. uh, or surrounding areas than than years before that. And you know, for obvious reasons, we didn't hear a lot of that during COVID, and the doors are open back up. People are traveling again, so we're starting to hear more about that. Um, and the biggest thing for a lot of people is that most people think it's just turnkey. Like, oh, it looks like I can go and make you know. You know, a thousand bucks or two thousand or three thousand or four thousand bucks a month. Uh, it looks amazing. It looks incredible. And there's probably some good opportunities down there. Um, but I, I mean, my perception of it is that there are pros and cons to almost every opportunity. And so, what I'd like to do is before we get into all that, Nick, I'd like to understand from your perspective. You know, you said you were you were going down. And you did some research. I want to start about square one. How did you start the pre-approval process, and what were some of the biggest surprises that you found when we were when you were trying to get qualified for the loan in uh, in the U.S.? There's only a few lenders that will that will lend to um, t- that will lend to Canadians the, for the cross-border program. One that was TD um, that I, that I experienced anyway. So TD and one was RBC. TD required 25% down. RBC required 20% down. So we went, we, so we quickly chose RBC for that reason. Um, uh, secondly, um, the, the get your pre-approval was surprisingly easy. It only took a few days to, to get the pre-approval form and letter. Um, we, uh, it was a little bit difficult because I know that RBC cross-border is understaffed so it was hard to get somebody on the phone um the converse the conversations we had with their initial person that was handling our file was non-existent so it would be you know we would send 
you know, five, six emails to one response. And so then we actually had to call up, stay on the line and request a manager. And the manager actually took our, took our file on. So that was maybe a nuance, maybe for us at that time, it could be a whole staffing thing. Who knows a COVID related thing, who knows, but that was the experience. And that's a way I have to sort of report. The, one of the interesting parts was that was never explained to me. <laughs> I explained it to everybody that I meet now is that at least through RBC, your pre-approval means nothing. At least in Canada, or at least in British Columbia, when you when you get that pre-approved rate, so we had a a, a three point nine nine. So you're talking about the rate hold here, right? Rate hold, right? So we had a pre-approval okay. letter with three point nine nine. No, sorry, sorry, it was three point five. That's right, fixed term for five years, which is good. And we had that pre-approval in January, um, and and uh, lo and behold, later on when we went to co- complete, they they re they reapproved us, I guess you could say. We had to run our, our, basically another pre, another approval process, and the rate wasn't held. So we ended up negotiating to a four point nine nine percent fix over five years, which we were, we were like, "Holy crap!" That just changed our numbers completely. So one of the biggest takeaways from that that portion of that experience of buying in the U.S. was that there are no rate holds. Okay, so what you see now is can be a lot different later. Yeah. So yeah. very difficult to predict that from that perspective. So it sounds like for the sake of conversation, uh, you could just apply when you're buying the property down there and probably end up, you know, in the same position as doing this quote unquote uh, rate holder pre-approval in advance, right? Um, and obviously the communication part was <laughs> its own challenge, but we won't get too far into that. Just something yeah. to expect. Um, you know, transparently speaking, I've talked to a lot of clients gone through as have gone through what you mentioned there, Nick, and and it's usually the same feedback around communication. So probably good for someone to know when they're looking into this to not be in too much of a rush if they're working with one of these larger banks in the U.S. from that perspective. Yeah, I would say I'm a savvy investor that have the fortunate uh, the fortune of involving almost a billion dollars in real estate transactions with my clients. So I learn a lot along the way for myself too. I can apply to my own purchases. It's just a whole. It's just like literally the wild wild west down there. I guess the wild wild south in in Austin. It's um it's 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 completely different than the culture of borrowing and purchasing in British Columbia. There's a, there's a lot of differences there. Another, so another part of it was part, in, which is very important when you're talking about getting approved and be feeling comfortable making that offer, um, is that, um, so I have, so my buddy and I were pre-approved and he also is a, uh, an investor and holds a few properties. So I think in, in, in total, we had seven, we had seven, um, seven different addresses on our application as holdings. So between the two of us, we were pre-approved just fine. We went for the actual final approval after we had our subjects removed, um, the bank denied us. So another reminder that there's no such thing as a true pre-approval through a bank. There isn't. So <laughs> well, they denied us because we had one too many properties in our application and we can't go backwards and remove it because we've already disclosed it. And you have to, you should always disclose anyways, right? But um, so I had to go on the approval myself and, and I got the mortgage, thank goodness. Right. And, um, but the funny thing is that the bank would allow my partner on title, even though I was the only one borrowing the money, which is different here. Mm-hmm. You can have one person who doesn't have financial, it doesn't have on that mortgage. So it's, it's very odd. Um, but you know, if, if, if I couldn't, 
if I couldn't get the approval on my own, and this was like the last second, this is day 40, basically day 43, uh, and two more days left till, till completion. Um, and when we found out that was an issue, um, we would have been, it would have been, you know, we would have been in a, a big problem because we wouldn't be able to close. Um, so yeah, it's, there's a lot of takeaways from my experience. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that people shouldn't invest in the U S based on, you know, it's going to be hard. I just think that people might think in the general public that it's easy and it's not, um, there's a lot more complications when you're buying in the U S as a, as a Canadian resident, just, just because the processes are different and, um, and not that the language of lending and borrowing is, it might not translate from what we're used to into, into the U S. So one thing that, I mean, it's really helpful, uh, knowing that the timelines, uh, can drag on forever. The yeah. part that you mentioned about the pre pre-qualification pre-approval, I mean, Nick, I hate to say that, but we hear that same thing every single day up here. Um, obviously. Right. but some yeah. points about the rate hold obviously is huge. I think um, let's go back a little bit to the investment side of things. Yes. Really good experience on the the lending side, uh, and I know that there'll be some takeaways. So uh, you know you were excited, you were interested. Let's look across border. A lot of people say the same thing. We touched about it throughout the hop. It looks like the cash flow is unreal. It looks like the numbers are amazing. How did you start to first of all analyze these numbers? Like, were you just looking at a performa? Did you have data to help you figure that out? And what what else attracted you to these particular uh, properties that you're looking at? I started from the, the I started from um, figuring out what the rents would be in certain areas. So what? So I would go on to Airbnb, and I would pretend that I am going to rent, and I would look at at different areas and different area codes or zip codes, and see what they were renting for on a daily on a daily basis trying to find some like commonalities trying to get some averages um so it was a lot of spreadsheeting a lot of research trying to figure out what that the best areas would be on a on a financial standpoint before even visiting the area so i didn't i didn't know that the neighborhood never been to austin before right so i wanted to get the homework ahead of time pick you know three or four areas that we thought that were that would generate decent cash flow and had good vacant had good um, yeah vacancy rates and then we would go and uh, and explore those areas. That's kind of what we did. We did it for Scottsdale as well, but you know something about Austin just drew us. We uh, you know something the unknown drew us to. I'm familiar with Scottsdale, but I wanted to be in a place that had maybe potential for a little bit more growth. Um, but also had that income potential as well. So, so the analytics all pointed to Austin as being a a good investment at the time, and that was and that research was primarily completed over December twenty twenty one into all the way to into March twenty twenty two. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So so uh, obviously analyzed it, did a lot of a review of the information. The numbers look pretty good. Uh, yeah. If everything worked out the way that you were thinking, how much money were you thinking that you were going to be earning on an annual basis here? Uh, on a monthly basis, on a gross income plot, anywhere between depends on the month, but anywhere from five thousand on the um, on a slow month in the summers when it's really hot, mm -hmm. to about nine thousand in um, the, during the prime time, which is sort of mid October onwards, all the way to about April. Yeah, and so I, we haven't reached those months yet, but. Um, but um, but that was the idea, yeah. And so, how much of that were you anticipating net? How much were you thinking of taking home after all that? 
Well, we 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 anticipated that our running our our break even cost over after everything was five thousand a month. So so five thousand. So in the hot times, we'd be making you know four thousand net a month. Um, and the slow times would be the, the idea would be the break even. Okay, it's yeah. interesting. Um, you know, obviously uh, not you know not a cash cow by any means, but potential for earning some money. Yeah. Um, and if, if done right, it sounds like it could have. So, uh, you know, obviously let's, let's fast forward a little bit here. So you analyzed the property, you did the numbers, you knew the highs and the lows, uh, you knew the seasonality of it. You still haven't owned it for a year. So there's only so much uh, data that you have to collect right. right now. Um, let's circle back to, uh, you know, the, the process, the, the purchasing process of the property and some of the challenges that you didn't foresee that came up at that point. Um, you had mentioned some challenges making an offer and getting it accepted and being qualified in the right state and how that worked. So uh, again, listeners who are thinking about buying a property in the States, what, what could they have learned and things that you picked up when you were trying to pick and look at a property and make an offer on it and some of the challenges that came up there? Certain States is something that I learned that don't, don't like not necessarily out of country offers out of state offers. So if you're, uh, and that's, that's more out of state lending. So for example, in, in Texas, um realtors do not like and i think that, that the thought gets transferred to the clients based on their influence do not like out of state offers because of potential financing issues so i don't know what those could possibly be but it but to have an out of state lender is a weakness in writing an offer in in austin texas at least okay um so we had to we had to get letters we I mean, basically had to do a full financial disclosure of myself and my business partner every time we wrote an offer to show that we're real, that we can afford it. And it's way too much information. Like this is, it's like we're, we're trying to get a commercial loan, but we're just trying to convince the sellers to work with us. Um, so we had to be super happy. I wrote letters on behalf of myself to give to the give to the realtor to to um, explain our situation. Just trying to soften it up because other agents on the on the listing side did not like to work with us, just because we weren't in we weren't from Texas. <laughs> odd, super Texas, odd. Yeah, done I, differently I, down there. In, in Vancouver, when I see money coming into Vancouver, that with you know with with letters from the bank and pre approvals and all that, that's that's wonderful. Down there, it's not well received. Okay, odd, super super backwards yeah in my so, did you have the experience where you had to uh offer on multiple properties before you could proceed or were there any challenges there or were you able to sort it out um we we actually we actually kind of kind of kind of got a little lucky um we we picked one property that we really liked and we went for it hard and uh we after seeing about 30 properties we found the one that we seen after looking at 30 properties this is by far the best and by far the best value so we went at it. It was seven listed at seven forty. We picked it up in multiples at seven ninety. Got it. Um, okay. We had to, and then so in our offer, it was it was clean. It was effectively subject free. So we did a pre inspection and everything too. Okay, so talk about that for me. So you said the offer is clean. So what does that mean from a, a purchase perspective? Like, is, does that mean you are, that you are basically? You are basically taking full liability on a property after you do your due diligence. The one really interesting part 
in the U.S., which is different than Canada, at least right now, because it's coming into effect, is the option period. You pay for it, so it costs us ten or five thousand um, dollars. But you know, if you don't remove your subjects, if you don't, if you if you don't remove the option, you you have to forfeit five thousand dollars, which is in trust. Um, you when you, any property in in the U.S. Um, you have it like a rescission period, which is negotiated with the seller. So in this case, it was five, it was five days, five business days. So we had an option, and during that option period, we were able to do our due diligence. So if we backed out of the deal after five business days, then we would forfeit five thousand dollars. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So um, so this is very similar to what's coming into BC in in, in January. Is that it's there? Basically, is called the rescission period. It's basically a three day option period. It's no different than it happens in the U.S. So this isn't a new thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it has happened before in other places. But to get back to Texas, um, so you know we get we get our contract. It's accepted, right? With the option, we send it to our lending the lender, and we and the and we negotiated based on a thirty day close, um, and so so we re- we remove our lender doesn't get back to us at all they just say receive no problem it's okay we remove um this the option subject or its clause and we go firm right and we give our deposit uh a week later the bank manager calls us from rbc in georgia says oh yeah no we need 45 days <laughs> i go what he says oh didn't didn't your didn't your advisor tell you that we have to have 45 days for cross-border uh acquisitions i'm like no that's what never communicated to us so that cost it costs us under ten thousand dollars to get the extension for an extra 15 days so i mean obviously like i I don't know if i'm surprised to hear that i hate to say it um i hear of all sorts of horror stories from from a lot of the uh, the advisors out there but uh, great feedback for anybody looking to purchase a property down there from up here, which is give yourself a heck of a lot more time than you think. Now, I can only imagine that if you were in that situation in the first place and you couldn't have provided those days, perhaps you might not have even got the property. So I suppose that is all right from that perspective. That's, that's very true. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, not a very good feeling to have that. So <laughs> so it no. sounds like starting off, some of the biggest challenges were on the lending side, not not being able to be pre-approved, not getting the verification, not having a rate hold, and then not being communicated with. So rough situation, man. I'm glad I, I'm glad we don't do any of those things. No, um, I know. It's it it is it is very, very strange. But you know, it's I wanted I wanted to do it myself before I started advising clients to do it. And you know, a lot of clients wanted to buy in Austin as well. And yeah. I said, hold off for a little bit. Let me let me see how it is. Let me be the guinea pig. I love let me that. be the guinea pig for my clients before I advise them, right? And and um, but I'm so I'm I'm, I'm grateful with the, that experience. I mean, there was a, a lot more that just went sideways in that deal that we had to keep keep together. My job is to keep deals together, so it was a challenge. But I think that if you, if you didn't have that re- resilience or that experience, it could it could get bad real quick. I mean, so a couple of things to take away. I mean, you are a real estate agent as a as a career. So uh, first and foremost, a lot of this stuff would not phase you the same way it perhaps would phase other people. I can only imagine someone else going through this would have a, probably a little bit more of a challenging and emotional experience from that perspective. And then the second thing is you 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 know how to negotiate the file. You know where to find um, or, or where some of the issues could happen. And even this stuff happened to you and surprised you. So uh, things to think about. So 
Um, to circle back, I mean, again, uh, the the uh, the base of our conversation is to understand if it was worth it in the end. And I know that we'll probably be looking back at this, Nick, and say in you know in three to five years, perhaps uh, just like any real estate transaction, there's some value in it. But again, I think the big reason that this is such a big topic for so many people is that they think it's it's worth that much more and the values are worth that much more. So so if yeah. someone was, was reaching out to you today and said, hey, you know what? I heard I can make a whack load of cash cross border. What, how, what, like, what kind of things would you suggest to them or, or what would you maybe uh, cons- ask them to consider before they go that route? I would ask them to consider if they, if they bought a, find out what your budget is, find out what you can afford and, and find out if you can, if you can carry it, um, if you can carry the property without it being rented. Mm. That's what you like. Like no, you, no, you never know what's going to happen down there, right? Um, you, with the re- with the recession that's going on right now, the um, uh, our bookings are way down, like way way down when they should be way up right now. So we're mm. only at about fifty percent occupancy, so we're barely breaking even at this point. Mm. Um, and and uh, whereas we should be at you know that seven to nine thousand dollar a month, so we should be making at least two thousand a month profit, but we're not. Hmm. Um, but but it's it's all relative. Um, and hindsight, if I knew what I if, if I knew what was going to happen back then, I wouldn't have bought. Mm-hmm. I would have kept my. I would have. I would have waited. Um, would you would you suggest that um, it would have made more sense to invest uh, into something more locally? Would that have made a difference or a suggestion there or uh, perhaps? Yeah. I, I think there's always opportunities in every market for a good investment. I think I think um, yeah. I I mean, if I if I knew that the if I, I mean like a crystal ball, I would have waited and waited and waited another year before I bought. Sure, I, I think I would have still bought in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the exceeding grace for, for me to make it to sort of make this successful right now is just a pure interest rate exchange, uh, 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 an exchange rate transaction. So now that you own it. Yeah. Now that I own it, it is what it is. So, you, you know, you, so my, my portion, so we had to put, you know, put two we put about $200,000 down on the, on the buy 180 down on the buy us. So that was about $240,000, maybe not quite, maybe a little bit less. Uh, $230,000 Canadian at the time. Um, now that, that conversion isn't nearly as good, right? So we probably made money just on the, um, the exchange. Um, so that's a little bit of the, you know, silver lining at this point. But, um, but if you were going to do it now, for example, man, that US dollar is very expensive. So even if, the market's going down for sure. Um, so even if you, you're getting today's prices and let's just say it's five to ten percent less, right? Your money's at least ten percent more now than it was back in January. Yeah. So you're starting at this very high, historically high um, exchange rate, US yeah. to Canadian or Canada to US dollars. So yeah. so if and when, because it will one day recover. Um, so let's say the market recovers 15%, but then our Canadian dollar goes up by 20%. You're still down. Yep. Right. So I think right now it's a little bit difficult. 
For sure. So so the dollar doesn't work in our favor, obviously, as you mentioned, some challenges. I mean, the market challenges are what they are. As someone they are, yeah. as an investment perspective, they always know that you're going to have ebbs and flows. So you have to kind of build that into your your long long term, I, I think. Yeah. Um, one other factor that that we talked about yesterday was the uh, taxes. You have to pay income taxes in in Texas and in in Canada, or well, in the U.S. and in Canada, I should say. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's really gray. It's really really gray. Oh. I mean, you only you only you, you do have to file taxes in Canada, yep. but it's when you pull the money out is when you get dinged. We're not planning on pulling money out. We're planning on reinvesting into the property. So we're going to keep it at a neutral at the, at the minimum, if not mm-hmm. a loss. That's, that's I'm trying to keep it really smart that way. So as we make money, we're going to re, we're going to turf it. As we make money, we're going to put a pool in. Those types of things, right? So we just keep that cost down. Um, but yeah, you have to file both Canadian and U.S. taxes. Um, you have to get a proper tax number for non-residents of the U.S. So there's a I think it's called an ITIN or something like that. I don't know the abbreviation, but it's a it's a proper international tax number that you get. And it's just for the IRS to keep them happy, right? When you have an Airbnb account um, uh, or a VRBO, uh, Airbnb will start withholding your, your, your payouts, a, a big portion of it anyways, until you supply them with that number. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be just, it's going to, it's, it's a lot. It's like 30 or 40%. Um, regardless if you're making money or not. So you have to make sure you have that number or else you're going to start. And they'll just arbitrarily just start withholding it and good luck talking to somebody live. I'm a super host and I can't get through anybody to talk about taxes. It's it's frustrating, but no, if you wanted to, but we got it sorted out real early, so it's fine. Um, Yeah, and you need a, so, so, you know, other issues for us over COVID was that, you know, in order to apply for that international um, tax number in the U.S. With, through, uh, with the IRS, you have to have a certified copy of your passport. So when I went into Passport Canada, um, they said, oh, it'd be about, it's about a five-week turnaround. So you have to give your passport to uh, the pass to Service Canada. They send it to Quebec. A certified copy is a photocopy with a stamp. The color photocopy with a stamp. That's it. And then they send it back. So we said, okay, we have, well, we have three months before we have to, you know, get our num. We, we have to travel back to the U.S. to close, right? Um, so, so we, so we gave our passports. We never got them back. Oh boy. Yeah. So it, we got them back after five months. To keep the long story short, so, um, so we had to sign. So we were, we were kind of screwed. So we had to sign our closing docs at the Peace Arch border at no man's land. And so we had to hire a notary from the U.S. to come up and no I remember seeing that video. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it was wild. It was wild. So that's something else that was a little bit different. But that's a COVID-related issue. Yeah, hopefully um, no, more, no more of that happened in the near I hope not to. But these are the things that come up. It, like the, un, the unknown will surface real fast. Um, yeah, when you're, when you're swimming in unknown waters, they will surface real fast. And it doesn't matter how much preparation you have. If you're not searching for certain things or or, or certain problems that might arise, um, you just won't be prepared. So yeah, there's a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of problem solving, a lot of, you know, yeah. But you know, so 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 the grass, the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. The grass is really green at the Peace Arch. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at picnic tables in no man's land there. No, yeah, but it was, um, it was a, you know what? It was such a valuable experience. So I, I mean, it was well worth the experience. Um, I can easily advise people now what to do and what not to do, especially not what, to, what not to do. Yeah. Um, but it definitely broadened my education in terms of real estate, uh, which I love. Yeah. But, you know, but I'm glad that I was able to do it based on my, on myself rather than advise a client to go buy in the U.S. without understanding everything about that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just like anything else, Nick, I mean, there's there's uh, opportunities and there's challenges associated with every opportunity. I think for the great thing about you coming on and talking about this here today is that, like I said, I mean, I, you know, we see it in our industry all over the place with Canada, the US, a variety of people saying, hey, just, you know, buy this this property and you're going to make a whole whack of cash and buy here. And there's a great opportunity here because yeah. blah, 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 blah. And, and like, truth be told, like you, I subscribe to this theory and I know you do as well, which is that like real estate, there's pros and cons with every investment. You're going to make money if you do it right, but it's a long-term gain, right? right. A long-term gain. There's amazing opportunities right here at home that you could benefit just in, in the same nature, different type of property, different type of strategy, perhaps, but you could benefit just as well. You just have to obviously know it. The only difference is that it's here at home. And, it, and it's either a local or it's in Canada. So there's a lot more understanding from the locals to do that sort of thing. So right. yeah, just, just buyer beware, right? Buyer beware, know your numbers. And, and you don't have to go to Austin. You don't have to go to Scottsdale. You could go to Bedroom, anywhere in you know BC or Canada for that matter and find these incredible opportunities. The cool thing, however, is that you you did do this. You went through this. You had a chance to see it. And now you've got the, the information to know, like, here are some challenges. There are some real things you need to think about this, right? It's really, it's really easy to, to think very bullish. I mean, I'll, it's it's a it's a great thing to have these big aspirations and dreams that you're going to make a ton of money and it's going to be so easy. But in the reality of it, Airbnb is a business on, is a business on, is of its own. It's, it needs a business plan. It needs planning. Um, it, it, it's not as straightforward as people might think. It's, it's a craft that you have to learn um, anywhere from you, you know, organizing your cleaners, organizing your maintenance and repairs. I mean, we, <clears throat> you know, things are going to go wrong in a house abroad and you're only going to find out about it from a guest. Got it. It's not there to have a look at it, right? Um, and if you decide to hire an outside manager to manage it, you're going to lose 20% of your gross income right there. So a lot of your profits gone right there. So I self-manage with my with my partner Tim, my business partner Tim, in this in this venture because um, it doesn't make financial sense to hire a manager to do it. Um, and and all and all the manager, I mean, there is value in the managers because they do have connections to trades and cleaners and whatnot, and they make that aspect quite easy. But do I want to pay somebody two thousand dollars a month to arrange a cleaner when I could do it myself in five minutes? Not really. Do I want to pay somebody? And then, and then, if there is an issue, it's going to come back to you. It's usually going to be either from the cleaner or from the guest going to the manager, and the manager is going to call you, and you have to make the decision. I would rather just simply manage it myself and reap the uh, and, and make a profit or or have better cash flow that way. I mean, twenty. It could be twenty. You know, twenty thousand dollars a year. Again, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, yeah they do all right. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I think so. The interesting thought on that piece, and that's a separate conversation. But to your point, is convenience of having someone do this, and or 
you know, you're doing this yourself. And, you know, one thing I hear from people just generally speaking, Nick, off track here about real estate investing is I don't have the time. If you don't have the time, then acknowledge it and <laughs> and build that into your pro formas and do that. But if you do, and it is something that you're willing to take on, then of course, like you said, Nick, you can let people in the enter phone or <laughs> arrange the cleaner, or whatever types of things and save yourself a whack load of cash, right? So uh, no different than anything in, in life, right? If you're willing to put in the, the extra time and, and work, then the money obviously counts itself. So yeah. Uh, so so circling back, um, we are now obviously nearly a year later or just under a year later, you've got this property in hand. We talked about per, if you had the crystal ball, you waited a year. So we are this year later, we're in this market right now, Nick, you are talking to a client today and you're they're suggesting they want to buy and invest into real estate. Where, where, where are the opportunities right now, Nick, that you're seeing? Where, where would people? Yeah, um, I probably wouldn't suggest cross-border right now. It doesn't make sense. I'm not, it's not because I had an interesting experience. It's just because if you look at the way that the numbers work, if you, if, unless you have US dollars already that you converted a while back, I wouldn't do it. It's not worth it right now. If you, you need the market to recover substantially and the, U, and the Canadian dollar to stay weak for years for that to make sense um, on, a, on an appreciation model and on the rental model, you know, things are tight in the US too, right? They're, they're on a cash crunch. I don't think people are going to be traveling as much as, as they did a year right after COVID anyways. So I think that um, I'd be cautious. Where the opportunities lie, um, it's, it's, it all depends on the property. Like there's so many opportunities in Vancouver. There's so many opportunities on that Vancouver Island. I think Vancouver Island is a great spot. Like Langford is a phenomenal area to invest right now. Like anywhere there's, there's, there's improvements to you know, if they're adding universities or they're expanding universities or if they're expanding infrastructure in smaller cities. Um, I would do my research on where the population is shifting and look at the census and, and see where, where is the expectation of the population in Western Canada to grow. Um, that's what I'm doing. I bought a pre-sale in Kelowna for that reason. I, I And for those exact reasons, people are moving into Kelowna because it's becoming more of a, a place to stay and live rather than uh, uh, a six month or summer vacation type spot, um, even more so than, than before. Um, wine country is just exploding. It always has been great, but you know, the, the amount of vineyards that are in wine country now has doubled in a few years, right? It's becoming a destination for all over the world. Um, UBC is, is building a, a campus in downtown Kelowna. Uh, it's just evolving from this Kelowna that we need from the past to, its own sort of proper city now with some Got cool it. cool tourism opportunities. So um, I believe in it. I bought, I put my money there and I put some clients in there too because I, I did it myself. I love Victoria. Victoria is solid. Um, I think Vancouver is going to have some great opportunities downtown. Um, you know, prices are, are coming down. I'd hold off a little bit and wait and see for a good opportunity. But if you have cash right now to buy, I think you're going to get some good deals in Vancouver in the next six months. Um, yeah, but there's opportunities yeah. will arise everywhere. You just have to look. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. Yeah, and the only lie if you if you're using numbers that don't make sense. And I've seen people do that. It's like, well, I'm going to get seven hundred dollars a night for my two bedroom condos. If you're, no, you're not. So I can tell you right now what you're going to get for your condo downtown Vancouver, right? You're probably going to get half that. So run your numbers, run your numbers at a very conservative level. 
I call it, you know, exit C, B, and A. A being your best, C being your worst, and B being your, 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 your blended of the two, right? So that's your averaged out. But I always run my, I always run my numbers at a C to see if I can carry it. Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. Tons of value there, man. Tons of value as always, every single time we come on. Well, uh, listen for everybody who's uh, got questions about cross border, of course, we'll tag uh, Nick in the, uh, the social media, Instagram, you can follow him on online. He likes to uh, share a little bit about his journeys and his delicious food. He's always eating. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a separate separate deal altogether, but fortunately experience food, food reviews, reach out to Nick or questions about buying real estate. (laughs) Nick, thanks so much again, man. I really appreciate you popping on the show and uh, can't wait to have you on next time to hear about your next adventure. Yeah, Alex, thanks a lot. There's all, there's going to be lots of adventures. Real estate's so much fun. 